When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Conflict between Israel and Palestine, of course, has been escalating this week. Today we have two segments about Palestinians. Later in the show, we'll talk about Edward Said. He was the leading voice of Palestinians in the United States before he died in 2003. Adam Schatz will talk about his life in Palestinian politics. Edward Said was also the nation's classical music critic. And Adam Schatz was the nation's literary editor. His work included editing Edward Said's pieces for the magazine. But first, Rachel Kushner. Her new book, The Hard Crowd, includes an unforgettable essay about her visit to a Palestinian refugee camp Her novels, The Mars Room, The Flamethrowers, and Telex from Cuba have been translated into 26 languages and won many awards. We've talked about them here. The essays in The Hard Crowd are about politics, art, literature, music, and motorcycles. And they appeared originally in the New York Times Magazine, the LRB, the Paris Review, Art Forum, and the New Yorker. We reached her today at home in L.A. Rachel, welcome back. Thanks, John. Nice to be here. Well, the Palestinian refugee camp you wrote about in the hard crowd is not in Gaza or southern Lebanon. It's actually inside Jerusalem. I knew nothing about this. It's called Shuafat. Of course, your essay is not about the current crisis in Jerusalem and the efforts of right-wing Jews there to push Palestinians out of some of the Palestinian neighborhoods around Shuafat. You visited in 2016 when something called the Knife Intifada was going on. But your report is about ordinary life for Palestinian refugees at that time and in that place. What's going on now in Israel and Palestine is so much worse. We're speaking on Wednesday. When you were in Shuafat, Israeli planes were not bombing Gaza and killing children. Israeli forces had not attacked the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem at the end of Ramadan and injured hundreds of Palestinians. I almost said that when you were in Shuafat in 2016, things were more peaceful. But that's not really the right way to describe it. Yeah, I would say, I could see how one would use that expression compared to now that it was relatively peaceful. But going there as I did and witnessing what to me very much looked like apartheid, and in fact, representatives from South Africa who had been a part of the truth and reconciliation process had gone to the West Bank and said that apartheid wasn't quite the right term because what they witnessed there was so much more extreme in terms of there being two different systems for two different populations of people. In any case, going there and witnessing what looked like apartheid and seeing 
the constant violence and humiliation that was enacted by Israel to maintain that apartheid is never peaceful. The year that I was there was the intifada of the knife when young people with nothing to lose charged at Israeli soldiers with knives in their hands. Just these totally futile acts of despair. And my feeling by the time I left Israel and Palestine was I was stunned to think that the Palestinian people were not running at Israeli soldiers in despair every second of their waking lives. And it was the opposite of what you'd think. You think you would ask yourself, how could these kids decide to end it all? You know, it's a version of suicide by cop running at a soldier with a knife in your hand, a soldier that's armed to the teeth, moreover wearing, you know, knife proof, bullet proof, all kinds of personal body armor. My question was the opposite. How are they not doing that all the time because of the extreme nature of their predicament and the torture and humiliation of it? So that was my personal takeaway. And I think that part of Israel's trick is to leave us with a lack of language where peace is not the right term for a momentary absence of terror, such as the time when I went, when, as you say, um, Israel was not actively bombing buildings that were full of children in Gaza. Your visit to Shuafat was a big deal for the people who live there. It seems like they were all happy to see you and happy to talk to you. Partly that was because you obviously cared about them and were interested in them, but also it was because of your guide, a wonderful man named Baha Nababta, 29-year-old community organizer. In some ways, it's a story about him. How did you and Baha find each other? I was invited to go to the West Bank in 2016 by the writers Michael Shabon and Ayelet Waldman, who were putting together an anthology to mark the 50th anniversary of the occupation of 1967. And the book is called Kingdom of Olive and Ash. And they had liaised with an incredible array of different kinds of contacts on the ground in the West Bank from community organizers of youth groups in cities like Hebron and Ramallah to architects who are experts on the tripartite division that Israel uses um, to code areas and how they are controlled and the level to which they are controlled to philosophers and historians, poets. We traveled all over the West Bank for a week and um, met with people multiple times a day. I mean, we would be roused, for instance, at four in the morning to go to a checkpoint at Kalandia and talk to the woman there who's been monitoring that checkpoint for the last 40 years mm. uh, and talking to her about the difference between merely being a witness to humanitarian crimes and doing something more. And she is more on the side now of doing something more. At the end of that long and intensive and concentrated week, we each were given a weekend where we had chosen a specific subtopic that we wanted to write about for the anthology. And then they, long before the trip, had organized, arranged everything and connected us to the context that we would need for our weekend away from the group doing whatever we'd chosen to do. And just on instinct alone before I went, I was not knowledgeable about the history of Palestine. I was dimly aware of the way 
most people would be and dimly aware also of like where my affinities and sympathies might lie. But I really knew very little about the history of that conflict. And on instinct, I decided I wanted to see what life was like inside one of these refugee camps that's been functioning, where people thus are forced to make a life generation after generation for decades now. And what does that mean? These are not temporary camps at this point. Um, and obviously the really famous or more notorious camps are inside Lebanon. And I knew people who had written, you know, academic books about these camps and et cetera. But I saw on the map that there was a camp inside uh, the borders of Israel and it's called Shuafat. There's also a neighborhood called Shuafat and that should not be confused for the camp because they are very different. That's basically a middle-class neighborhood. Um, Shuafat refugee camp has 85,000 residents mm. who live in um, roughly one square kilometer. And I knew that and just asked myself, how do those people live? And what kind of self-government goes is, you know, goes on in that camp? Because the Palestinian Authority is not allowed into the camp. It is Israeli territory. But Israel does not service the camp. There's no water service. There's no electricity. There's no emergency services. There are no virtually no schools. There's no land registration. There's no paved roads. There's no garbage service. So how do these people live? And the organizers who worked with Michael Shabon and Ayelet Waldman, one of them, Memorial Rothman Zecker, who's a writer and an organizer who'd been uh, living and working in the West Bank for many years, knew of Baha Nababta and connected me to him. And we went into the camp together and met with Baha. And Moriel served as my Arabic interpreter for quite a while the first day I was there. Uh, and then he left and it was me and Baha alone. And I stayed with his family for a weekend and talked to him quite a bit about the camp, about his family, his history. He was born in the camp. Believe his fa father may have also been born in the camp. His children were all born in the camp and what kind of future they saw for themselves and also why people live in that camp. Have you been in touch with or heard anything about what's been going on in the last week or month there? Really just through the news, I've I, I, I've been busy and preoccupied with uh, some family issues. So I haven't had the time I'd like to, you know, read everything that's happened. And I, I like to follow um, Breaking the Silence, former Israeli military people who have stepped up to, you know, speak about their experiences in the military. And they, I'm on their newsletter, you know, email list and read what they have to say about it. They haven't sent out a report yet. Um, I will say that reading about the destruction in Gaza and the killing of children living in housing blocks in Gaza does remind me of my trip in 2016, because one of the people on our trip, the writer Dave Eggers, uh, went to Gaza. I went to Shuafat. Dave went to Gaza. And in order to go into Gaza, he had to, he had to get several different um, documents stamped by both the Israeli government and Hamas. And the people living in Gaza, like, you know, we've all heard over the years, are trapped there and cannot leave. And in a way, there is a similar predicament in Shuafat. In fact, I met people from Gaza in Shuafat 
who had, you know, originally in Gaza were trapped there. And then once they got to Shu'afat, were trapped in Shu'afat because Gazans are not allowed to really be anywhere. But inside of Shu'afat, since Israel doesn't service that camp, they don't bother with people who are there without papers, without documentation. And if you're there and you don't have, you know, a green documentation that allows you to travel in um, the West Bank and you don't have documentation that allows you to travel in Israel, you're basically stuck inside this one kilometer camp. And the Israeli military has invaded that camp in the past. And having been there, I think I could understand just in a tiny way, which is better than nothing at all, understand what it's like to be stuck in a territory that's being bombarded by the Israeli military. So when you were there, you moved around with Baha as people talked to him about what they needed, what they wanted him to help with. What sorts of things did they turn to him for? My impression of him was that he sort of was like a de facto mayor of the place, although the term mayor is a little problematic because that suggests politics. And I think that Baha transcended politics, maybe in the way that the most effective politicians do. He seemed like a trusted source that people could go to for a whole variety of problems. The first thing I saw him deal with was a lack of water in one of the unregistered, um, not up to code high rise buildings that people are forced to live in there. This building had no water um, and had had no water for a few days. They sort of take water illegally from lines that pass near Shuafat and they are forced to do that. Um, and they were having a problem and Baha's phone kept ringing and he wasn't answering. And finally he said to me, it's the people calling from this building here and pointed to this towering high-rise building. And he said, I can't answer yet because I really don't have a solution for them to offer. But he was trying to work with the facilities people who are kind of renegade facilities people who can figure out how to solve the problem of getting water to this building. Um, I remember another problem was a man whose baby uh, had died in a clinic and the man wanted to kill the doctor who uh, had attended to the situation with this baby. And it was one of those situations that without knowing much about it, I would say is a symptom of a lack of a useful, helpful civil structure where people resort to revenge out of grief. And not just that, but a symptom of a lack of decent medical care that people can turn to. And so Baha was forced to deal with a lot of very complex situations that arise in a place that doesn't have a civil structure. What did Baha mean when he told you, we need police here? Well, to be quite honest, and part of what I write about in that essay is what I heard in terms of what fit with a narrative that I was sort of constructing in my mind as I was with him and what I wrote down but didn't really think about in the moment. I mean, I was taking in a lot of information in just a few days' time and really just trying to be in that place. For me, it wasn't really a political engagement. It was me trying to write down sense impressions and be sensitive to what people were telling me. And the piece that I wrote was meant to, I guess I wanted people who read it 
to feel that they would have had the same reactions that I did, that it was just about a person being plunged into, immersed in an environment that was foreign to her. And yet the people in it still had so much dignity and humanity and decency. And I reacted to that. The detail about Baha telling me that they wanted police there was something that I wrote down in my notebook, but quickly kind of, I guess I would say I repressed it because it didn't really fit with my ideas for the place. And yes, you know, I'm I'm no real fan of the function of police in society who are sort of, you know, to clunkily summarize, there to protect private property and those who own property. But Baja coming from a place that is caught between two different authorities, not attended to by the government of Israel, not attended to by the Palestinian Authority, has been overrun by opportunists who themselves are a product of a place that has experienced war and a deeply ignobling treatment by the Israeli military for decades now. And so naturally there are young people there who are more brutal in their perception of how to get ahead. And they, there are people in the camp who regard the lawlessness as useful for their own endeavors, be it like selling drugs or making money in other ways. And, you know, some you can buy an apartment in Shuafat refugee camp for a lot less money than you would, for instance, be able to buy an apartment for in Israel proper, so to speak, proper. But there are people who could take that apartment away from you at gunpoint at any moment, and there's nothing you can do. So that's part of what Baha, I think, was speaking to is a lawlessness and opportunism that he was trying, you know, to push back against. And I believe that that's what ended up getting him assassinated in the street in the middle of the day in front of 100 people. Yeah, I have to say, when I read that part at the end, I shouted unintentionally, no. And my wife came into the room and said, what What happened? What's wrong? And I said, I was sort of embarrassed. And I said, oh, I'm just reading Rachel Kushner's book. But it is something horrible and something huge that ends this essay. Yeah, it was devastating to learn that. And um, the people who had organized my trip into the camp let me know I was getting on an airplane. It was 10 days after I left. I was traveling to do something to go talk to students at Hunter College. And um, they called me and said, you know, we're very sorry. We we need to tell you that Baha was killed. And um, it was unbelievable to me. I had not felt that I was inviting that kind of violence into my life by going there. But in fact, in a way I was, and um, your reaction of, oh no, I think was shared by people who knew Baha very well. There were activists, you know, is even Israeli activists who'd worked with Baha who don't recognize their own government, architects I knew who'd worked with him, who kind of work on, these issues of trying to reestablish services to Shuafat, who said, it's always the good ones. It's always mm. the good ones. Mm. People who, you know, are 
or not divisive, who are optimists and positive without being unrealistic, who have a natural grace. And Baha had a natural grace. And I think it was really devastating and demoralizing to people uh, that, that, he, that he died in, in, in this way. When you leave the camp, you do write everything, I quote, everything seems hopeless and obscene. And that's even before Baha got killed. Well, yeah, that was after I met the child of a friend of Baha, who's a co-organizer with him of a volunteer, voluntary emergency response system where without fire, medical or ambulance services, they, tr- they have a WhatsApp group where they try to be on call for emergencies. And the goal is to get people through the check Israeli checkpoint on the border of the camp back into Jerusalem so they can go to a hospital. And many people have died being carried on stretchers through that checkpoint. This incident had happened beyond Shuafat, where a school bus full of children had crashed on a wet road and turned over and caught fire. And it was a totally devastating uh, incident for the people of Shuafat camp. And um, I mean, it's honestly, it's hard to talk about, but this young woman that I met, she, young girl, she, I believe was eight years old, had been very badly burned and injured in that fire. And her father, Adele, you know, wheeled her out in her wheelchair to meet me. And she was very sweet and patient, didn't understand English and was asked to sit there and kind of pretend that she understood and was paying attention. And um, it was an unbearable situation, but it was also life for these people. And they were asking me to bear witness to their life and to this girl. And I did that, um, but also tried to explain what was difficult about it in the essay that I wrote that's in the book. Well, I'm sorry that we're running out of time. There's a lot more in this book that I'd love to talk about. You have a wonderful profile of Ruth Gilmore, our leading prison abolitionist. A lot of wonderful stuff about motorcycles. I guess I should just ask you to explain what does the title mean, The Hard Crowd? Yeah, it's true. You didn't ask me about any of the fun stuff, John. <laughs> right. It's right to the misery. Oh, um <laughs> Which, you know, I don't think that that essay is actually miserable, but The Hard Crowd is, well, it's the title of the book, but it's also the title of the final essay in the book, which is a kind of, I guess, remembrance of youth, memory, adolescence, and those parts of adulthood that one will never revisit again because they are gone forever. The Hard Crowd is a line I stole from a Cream song called White Room that I've always loved and remember having heard in a head shop when I was probably 10 or 11 years old growing up in San Francisco in the Haight-Ashbury. And to me, it's an evocative and strange grouping of words. It's not the tough crowd, you know, like um, a suspicious or unreceptive audience or the tough crowd like Marlon Brando in Hollister, California, looking for something to rebel against. (laughs) It's something else. And it could mean different things in different parts of the book. But in that final essay, I guess it's those who committed themselves totally and ardently to the present tense in a way that a writer, I think, cannot, because the noticer removes herself by virtue of her noticing. And you say that 
in the hard crowd, you were the soft one, which is, I guess, why you're here today and some of them are not. I don't know if I would have seemed all that soft if you'd met me then, (laughs) but it's a way to sort of make a proposition about difference. And also, I have often felt that people who have star quality are kind of up there for me among my friends. And I like to write about people as though they are stars. So in that way, I kind of position myself as the one who doesn't have those same qualities to which I'm paying homage. One last thing before we close, I have to ask Rachel Kushner, are you related to Jared Kushner? (laughs) I think you've asked me that before, John. Every time I always have to check in and make sure. My husband trollingly refers to him as cousin Jared, (laughs) um, which makes us all laugh. As far as I know, there is no actual relation. Rachel Kushner, her wonderful new book is The Hard Crowd. Rachel, thanks for all your work and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much, John. Always a pleasure. There's a new biography of Edward Said. He died in 2003. In addition to being the leading American advocate for Palestinians and the author of Orientalism, one of the key scholarly books of the later 20th century, he was also classical music critic for The Nation and wrote about Palestine for the magazine. Adam Schatz was the nation's literary editor for much of that time. Now he's U.S. editor for the LRB, the London Review of Books. He also writes for the New York Review, the New York Times Magazine, the New Yorker, and other publications. He's also been a visiting professor at Bard and at NYU. We reached him today at home in Brooklyn. Adam Schatz, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, this new biography is called Places of Mind. It's written by Timothy Brennan, and it gives us a chance to talk about Edward Said. He was born in Jerusalem in 1935. His parents were Palestinian Christians. He was an American citizen. You open your piece in the new LRB back in 1963, when a young Edward Said joined the English department at Columbia and people were spreading a rumor about him. What was the rumor? Uh, The rumor, John, was that he was a Jew from Alexandria. And what do you make of that? Well, it's, it's, it's certainly entertaining, and it's also amusing because, in a sense, as I suggest in this piece, he, he might as well have been a Jew from, from Alexandria. He, uh, he had grown up uh, mostly uh, in Cairo, uh, m- many of his uh, schoolmates were uh, Middle Eastern Jews. Uh, his uh, piano instructor, Ignaz Tigerman, a renowned uh, specialist in the Romantic repertoire who, who ran a school um, in, in Cairo, was a Polish Jewish refugee. So it's not as though the, the intellectual uh, culture of secular Judaism was was foreign to Saeed. His parents, his father in particular, wanted him to get an American education, so they got him into a elite prep school. And then he went to Princeton in the 50s, a really conservative place during a conservative era. What was that like for him? Princeton was a very conservative school, but Saeed did manage, uh, I think, to find his uh, his intellectual vocation there as a, as a literary critic. 
Uh, he developed uh, close relationships, friendships that would uh, last through much of his lifetime with uh, people like the future art critic uh, Michael Fried, and uh, and Said continued his uh, you know his work as a as a musician. In fact, uh, when he was at Princeton, he was still flirting with the idea of a career as a concert pianist. Eventually, of course, uh, he chose literature. He was a young faculty member at Columbia when the campus became a kind of a world center of anti-war action in 1967 and 68. And his politics also changed dramatically in 1967 and 68, but not because of Vietnam. He was certainly uh, sympathetic to the campaign against the war in Vietnam. He was not a supporter of the war in Vietnam. He had already developed fierce anti-imperialist convictions, but he was rather traditionalist in his view of the university as a safe haven and sanctuary for intellectual inquiry. And he uh, uh, did not appreciate it when students came to his class and uh, wanted to shut down the classroom. He he threatened to call security. Vietnam, I think, was a a far less passionate concern to him than the emergence of the Palestinian guerrilla movement. Um, 1968 was was, uh, a very important year um, in the struggle for Palestine. Uh, It was the time of the Battle of Karameh, which uh, was a a battle by uh, Palestinian guerrillas, Fedayeen in Jordan against the invading Israeli army. Uh, The Palestinians lost that battle, but but fought very bravely. And so a myth emerged around the Battle of Karameh, and that helped to propel uh, the PLO forward. Saeed made his first trip uh, to Jordan in 1969, and a year later, he met Yasser Arafat. 1967, the, 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 the Arab defeat by Israel, and then 68, the emergence of the Palestinian guerrilla movement, this was a critical time in the formation of his political consciousness. And then in 1978, 20, after 20 years as a basically conventional English professor in terms of his academic work, he published Orientalism, which changed pretty much everything for him and, and for the humanities. In The New Yorker, Pankaj Mishra calls Orientalism a book that launched a thousand academic careers. Why was that book so huge and important? Right, and, and, that, and, and perhaps that's even an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> What Saeed did in that book was to argue that the the image um, that we have of the East, uh, he paid a special attention to the Middle East and to some extent to South Asia, was a construction of, of an imperialist West. In fact, the, the very production of Western knowledge uh, about the societies of, of the Middle East was geared towards furthering and consolidating a whole system of power and domination over these societies. Orientalism was misunderstood, of course. Edward was not an enemy of Western Civ. He always loved what we call the canon um, of great European writers. Well, the the book was, I think, um, taken to be a a kind of whole-scale denunciation of uh, Western uh, literature um, and culture and and misread and misconstrued in those terms, both by the book's many detractors on the right, but also uh, by a a number of people either on the left or in in Islamist movements 
um, that looked with great suspicion on, on Western, Western learning, Western intellectual traditions. The impact of a book is, of course, measured not only by the influence that it has, but on the number of misreadings that it inspires. Well, uh, at the time, I was one of those Marxist types whose critique of Orientalism was that if you're going to unmask Orientalism as an ideology, you need an analysis of the reality that it is concealing and distorting the actual relations, the real relations of dominance and resistance that exist in the Middle East. And Orientalism, of course, didn't do that. This was fairly conventional Orthodox Marxist objection. But this was the era when theory had become dominant in literary studies in the United States, especially French theory, starting with Foucault, who Edward was a champion of, and then Jacques Derrida, his deconstruction, you know, provoked the left with the, his doctrine of undecidability. The French literary theorists in America claimed to be engaging in a form of political action, a critique of domination, even though they wrote in a kind of private language that was mostly uh, read by grad students in comp lit. Edward eventually broke with theory, in quotes. Uh, what were his reasons? I mean, Orientalism, as you say, was, 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 was very indebted to French theory, but really especially to Foucault. He never had much interest in Derrida's work. And, and certainly the very fact that Orientalism omitted any discussion of the lived reality um, of the Middle East and focused on the Middle East as discursive formation was Foucauldian through and through. Yeah. But you also see in that book, especially in the last third of it, a shift from, from, from Foucault's vision of a discursive formation towards a more politically engaged um, analysis influenced by, on the one hand, Antonio Gramsci with his critique of hegemony, and on the other, by Noam Chomsky with his uh, uh, analysis of how consent is manufactured in otherwise democratic societies. And by the, I would say by the, the, the late 1970s, early 1980s, uh, Said's interests had shifted decisively towards figures like Noam Chomsky and also the British uh, art critic and essayist, uh, John Berger, who was very interested in how the oppressed and the subaltern uh, uh, resist and, and who um, believe that no um, system of oppression is ever entirely totalizing. There are always pockets of resistance and the point of analysis is to identify what those points of resistance might be and to profit from them. And, and so Saeed very much moved in that direction. I think also um, what happened was that as Saeed became a more uh, renowned and public figure and became increasingly uh, comfortable with himself, he found that he could shake off some of the encumbrances of theoreticism and jargon and, and all the kind of academic stuff that, that I think for reasons of uh, power and prestige might've felt necessary to him at one point. He realized, no, he could write in a more colloquial style. He could write in a more direct fashion. And that's really, the, that's really um, how his um, uh, work uh, changed in those years. And you see that already in a book like The World, The Text, um, and the critic um, in which he really announces his break with, with French theory and his turn towards a more political, quote unquote, worldly criticism. So he became not just the voice of Palestine for Americans, but as you have mentioned, he became an advisor to Yasser Arafat, 
and the PLO, he urged Arafat to negotiate a two-state solution, and then the Oslo Accords between Israel and the Palestinians were finally signed in 1993. How did that work out for Edward Said? Right. Well, I mean, Edward Said's career is 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 uh, is filled with uh, with paradoxes. Um, uh, like any good intellectual, um, he uh, he became an advisor to Arafat around 1974 when he helped to draft Arafat's uh, November 74 address to the United Nations, and it was it was it was Edward Said who contributed um, the line about uh, not allowing uh, the olive branch to fall from my hand. He, at the time, was essentially a supporter of a two-state solution, which is uh, the position that he advocated in in, uh, the question of Palestine, um, which did not win him uh, many admirers among his Palestinian comrades um, at the time. He also expressed reservations about the efficacy of armed struggle. He wasn't against armed struggle, per se. He wasn't a pacifist. But he believed that the Palestinian movement's strength lay in civil resistance and in the moral case of Palestine as a as a human rights and anti-colonial issue. Um, the Palestinians were vastly out, outnumbered militarily. There was no way they could fight Israel, and so he believed that they had to focus on on different methods um, of of. Um, pressing their case. Now, by 19, by the uh, late 1980s, early 1990s, uh, Said becomes increasingly disenchanted uh, with Arafat's rule for a number of reasons. Partly, it's the disaster of the Lebanese civil war and the PLO's involvement in that. Partly, it's the growing corruption of the PLO's uh, bureaucrats, which he observes close up um, in their uh, exile in Tunis. Partly, it is Arafat's decision to fully back Saddam Hussein in the Gulf War, which is a, a calamitous and forces the PLO to uh, negotiate prematurely because they had lost so much funding and all these Palestinians had been kicked out of Kuwait. And so by the time the Oslo Accords um, are signed in 1993, his, he has become increasingly frustrated with Arafat and he sees this agreement as a capitulation to Israel in which instead of defending Palestinian borders, uh, Palestinians will be defending Israeli security and essentially providing the, uh, the, providing the Israelis with the gendarme and not really realizing the project of Palestinian self-determination. So his position at that point begins to shift from two states to binationalism. And what was the response of the PLO to Edward Said's critique of Oslo? Well, the, the PLO never officially uh, responded to, to Said. However, um, at a certain point, uh, Said's books in Arabic, not in English, but his books in Arabic were banned in the Palestinian Authority, which essentially meant that unless you, you know, read English, you couldn't read Said's work, the work of the most important undeniably the most important Palestinian intellectual of his time. The books were banned. A number of the people close to Edward came to have his view of Oslo. So I, I, I do think he was quite prescient. But at the time, he was seen as a naysayer, certainly. And there were those who grumbled that, after all, Said had the luxury of high-handedly uh, denouncing the Oslo Accords, because after all, 
He had a nice apartment on the Upper West Side. He could go wherever he wanted to. He wasn't confined to the West Bank or the, or, uh, or the Gaza Strip. So there were those um, criticisms. Um, but I think today his position is viewed as quite a prescient one. And then he changed his position on, on Palestine in the Middle East. He gave up the fight for an independent Palestinian state and he became one of the first advocates of a single binational secular democratic state that would guarantee equal rights to Jews and Arabs. That was huge, and that was pretty daring at the time, wasn't it? Well, he was one of a, of a, of a, of a number of people, I think, who, who adopted this view. Um, of course, later, um, his, his friend Tony Judd um, would make a splash in the New York Review of Books by essentially making uh, the same argument. It was it was bold, but I think what was remarkable about um, his defense of, of of binationalism, whether or not you agree about its uh, feasibility, were the terms in which he cast it, and they were the terms that really um, marked his criticism um, as an intellectual in his writings on everything from literature to freedom of speech. I mean, an emphasis on. Uh, equality, on dialogue, on coexistence, on on having a place for different narratives that didn't necessarily fit, and an insistence on a kind of universal humanism. And all the time that he was speaking out for Palestine and reshaping post-colonial studies, he was playing the piano, and he was writing about classical music, writing for you at The Nation. I remember that we brought him to UC Irvine, where I'm on the faculty, to give some endowed lectures in 1990. He had a grand piano set up in the lecture hall, and he talked about music in the writing of Adorno, Proust, and Benjamin, and then he played examples from Beethoven, Wagner, and Strauss. We loved it. He loved doing it. Let's talk about Edward as a musician and as a music critic. I think that there's a tendency to see Edward's love of music and his writings on music as a, a kind of dandyish uh, pastime, separate from his writings on, on, on literature, on culture, and on politics, separate, to be sure, from his advocacy of the Palestinian cause. But in my view, these are all interwoven. And... He was very fond of Goethe's remark that art is about a voyage uh, to the other. And I think this is really how he understood um, music. I think this is why he um, named the music ensemble for Arab and Israeli youth musicians, the youth orchestra, the West East Devon Orchestra, which was a tribute to um, to Goethe's West East Devon collection of poems. uh, inspired um, by, uh, by Hafez, the Persian poet. Music was also a great passion for, for Edward uh, because it was a kind of um, artistic expression of what he called counterpoint. He loved counterpoint in intellectual argument. He loved it in music. This is one of the reasons why he was uh, obsessed with Glenn Gould. He went to every Glenn Gould concert uh, that he could, when he was a graduate student at Harvard, uh, he wrote one of his most memorable essays uh, on Gould, Glenn Gould, uh, as intellectual. Music for Edward uh, was not simply a matter of enjoyment, not simply a matter of aesthetic beauty. 
it was also a way of thinking. And I think that music permeates his writing practice. You, you cannot separate Said's writing from his music. The two really go hand in hand. And one of the most fascinating aspects of Said's career is the turn in his last years to a concept that he discovered uh, in Adorno, the concept uh, of late style. Adorno had theorized that in uh, Beethoven's late sonatas, late quartets, Beethoven was creating music that was not an expression of a kind of serene wisdom. It was not a summing up. There was nothing graceful about it. It was an explosion. It was a, these were works of difficulty. They were sometimes works of, of intense fragmentation, of daring dissonances. He called them the catastrophes of music. And Said was very much drawn to this idea of late style because I think it also spoke to his experience as a Palestinian intellectual who had broken with the mainstream of the Palestinian movement and who had who essentially decided I would prefer the dissonance and difficulty of my life living apart from the movement that I've devoted myself to for three decades than accept this false piece of Oslo. His writing was his late style. His late style was his way of being a Palestinian intellectual and being a man in the world. Adam Schatz is the nation's former literary editor. He wrote about Edward Said for the London Review of Books. Thank you, Adam. This was great. Thanks so much, John. It was a pleasure talking to you. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.